This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung, and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational, and this month I'm very excited to be able to promote a book that I read in great detail prior to release and that I absolutely loved. That book is Responsive Coaching by Josh Goodrich. Great teachers make a huge difference to students' lives, so helping teachers to improve throughout their career is vital. But how can we best do this? Multiple studies suggest that instructional coaching, a school-centered approach to developing teachers, is one of the best bets we have. And therefore, in Responsive Coaching, Josh Goodrich examines contrasting instructional coaching models, combining research and practical experience to build an approach to coaching that adapts to meet the needs of individual teachers, hence the name Responsive Coaching. This approach enables coaches to flex their style depending upon where a teacher is on their journey towards expertise in a particular area. Josh distills his responsive coaching approach into five areas, unpacking essential research, providing concrete examples of great coaching in action, and most importantly, providing a toolkit of practical responsive coaching strategies that you can use to support teachers to get better. Combining robust evidence from a wide range of fields with practical wisdom of experienced teachers, leaders, and coaches, this book is a critical toolkit for building an instructional coaching approach that works for every teacher. And like I said, I really, really enjoyed Josh's book, and this is one that I'd highly recommend uh, you grab if you are at all interested in instructional coaching. You can get your hands on a copy of Responsive Coaching by Josh Goodrich via the John Cat website. That's also where you can find my two books, Cognitive Load Theory in Action and Tools for Teachers, as well as the forthcoming Classroom Management Handbook, which may be out by the time you listen to this podcast. Again, that's the John Cat website or via Woods Lane in Australia or on Amazon or other online booksellers. This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by Catalyst, a project pioneered by Catholic education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn. Catalyst is an evidence-based educational project that's working directly in schools and with teachers across the ACT and parts of New South Wales. Catalyst has its genesis in this podcast and is a structured and strategic approach to bring the science of reading and the science of learning to life in more than a thousand classrooms. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests from the ERRR podcast, to realize the bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. If you'd like to find out more about opportunities at the Catalyst Project and Catholic education in Canberra, including the professional development that they're running, the way that they are engaging Australian and world leaders in evidence-based education, and even to explore employment opportunities, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link in the show notes. What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello, listeners and lovers of learning, and welcome to the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell, and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. This episode, we're speaking with Aaron Hamilton and Dylan William. Aaron Hamilton is Group Director of Education at Cognition Learning Group. Previously, he's held senior positions at Cambridge University Press and Assessment, the Education Development Trust, the British Council, and a research fellowship at Warwick University. 
Aaron's core focus is on translating evidence into impact at scale. He has overseen the design, delivery, and evaluation of large-scale education improvement programs across the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, Pacific Islands, East Asia, and the Middle East. Dylan William needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. Dylan is Emeritus Professor of Educational Assessment at the University College London Institute of Education. He started his career teaching in an inner-city London schools before transitioning to education research. He was the Dean of the School of Education at King's College London, Senior Research Director at the Educational Testing Service in Princeton, US, and Deputy Director of the Institute of Education, University of London. Dylan is particularly well known for his work on formative assessment, and I'm delighted to say that this is Dylan's second appearance on the ERRR podcast, and this one is just as good as the first, which was a particularly popular episode. In this episode of the ERRR podcast, we're discussing Aaron Hamilton, John Hattie, and Dylan Williams' new book, Making Room for Impact, a de-implementation guide for educators. Often in education, we talk about which programs, initiatives, or practices we should be incorporating into our practice. But rarely do we talk about what we need to give up to make space for those new practices. Even more rarely do we consider structured approaches to work out what to de-implement, how to do it, and how to measure success. But luckily, today is just one of those rare occasions where we do discuss these important topics. I was super impressed by the clarity and structure of the book, Making Room for Impact. And there were many, many fantastic tips and frameworks within that anyone interested in structured de-implementation will find supremely helpful. Further, this was just an awesome discussion with Aaron and Dylan, two super smart guys who have thought deeply about education. I hope you love this episode. Also, if you're keen for a weekly dose of educational insight, stimulation, and resources, you might like my EdThreads newsletter. Each week, I share with subscribers all of the juiciest education tidbits that I've collected over the week, wrapped up in an easy-to-digest email message. Join thousands of other teachers across the world and stay up to date with the most important ideas of education with this Friday afternoon message. To sign up, go to ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. That's ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. Oh, and one more thing. If you are looking for some training in instructional coaching, I'll be running another full day intensive with two members of the Step Lab team on Tuesday, 12th of March in Melbourne. We ran a number of these intensives throughout 2023 and they went really well. I'll just share three comments to give you a taste of how the day goes. One person said, I feel so much more confident to go back into coaching conversations and I met some amazing and passionate educators, which was so inspiring. Another educator said, this intensive is a game changer. I'm excited to improve coaching at our school. And a third person said, this is the most effective PL that I've ever engaged with. The Step Lab model of coaching is based on rigorous educational research and presented in an accessible manner that lends itself to implementation in the classroom. The intensive is based on sound educational principles, allowing plenty of time for discussion, consolidation, and explicit rehearsal. If you are interested in some training and instructional coaching with myself and a couple of members of the UK team, uh, Anya and Rachel, who are coming out from the UK for this intensive, uh, just jump on ollilovell.com forward slash coach for that info. That's ollilovell.com forward slash coach. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into this episode of the ERRR podcast. Aaron Hamilton and Dylan William, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Great to be here. Fantastic. Love to have you. Lovely to have you both here. Uh, the first question I wanted to ask today, to, to really start us off on this topic of de-implementation, is what is meant by the term de-implementation? So I can uh, pick that one up, Holly. 
Uh, and I, I think I can almost address it in a roundabout way by starting with what we mean by implementation. So if you think of implementation as the act of adding new programs, new widgets, new activities, new special projects, or keeping existing projects and initiatives in train, uh, you could think of de-implementation as being the inverse or the reverse of that. So it's about de-adopting, decommissioning, uh, or dialing back, but um, it is also something of a suitcase term because there are at least four different ways that you could de-implement something. You could remove the practice, so you could dig it up, uh, throw it in the bin. You could reduce the frequency that you undertake the practice. You could re-engineer it, so you might have something that has 23 steps and you identify ways in which you can cut some of those things back so you can do it in 16 steps and save lots of time and motion in the process. Or you could replace it with something else that is either more efficient or more impactful. And just to give you an example uh, to make it more concrete, if you wanted, for example, to de-implement smoking, you could remove the, the practice by going cold turkey. You could reduce it by cutting down the number of cigarettes that you smoke. So go, you could go from 20 down to 10, for example. You could re-engineer the practice by not inhaling or only inhaling every third puff. Or you could replace it. You could uh, take up vaping, which would be a related replacement. Or you could take up drinking tea, which would be an unrelated replacement. So it's a suitcase. It's a, it's a suitcase of many different things, many different strategies. It's not just about removing something. There are other things that you can do as well. Great. Really, really concise uh, intro there, Aaron. Dylan, what do you have to add to that? So I think the, the important thing to, to realize is the implementation is not the reverse of implementation. And the metaphor I like to use is if somebody's got a knife sticking in their gut, then the problem is the knife in the gut, but the solution is not just to pull the knife out. You have to figure out what will happen if you do that. And so I, I think that too often we've just thought that de-implementation is just the reverse of implementation. And in complex social settings, it just doesn't work that way. You can't actually de-implement by just undoing the things you did to implement. Once mm -hmm. things are implemented, they get embedded, they get woven into the fabric of the organization. And therefore you need to think very carefully about how you're going to actually de-implement it intelligently. Mm, very visceral metaphor there. I guess that leads on to the, the next question. Why in, in current education in particular, is it important that schools seriously think, schools and organizations seriously think about the possibility of de-implementation? And I'll throw to Dylan first with this one. So Aaron and John Hattie and I, over the last 20 so or years, have been talking about the need to improve schools by getting teachers to do things that they're not currently doing. And I think we were all pretty smart about that by saying teachers are already working as hard as they can. And therefore, before you give teachers additional things to do, you've got to take something off their plates. So whenever I work with a group of principals, for example, we talk about what they're going to do to improve their schools. I then ask them, are your teachers working as hard as they can right now? And they say, yes. I say, so what are you going to take off their plates? And they can't do it. They can't do it because they think of all the things that's currently going on. And they say, well, I can't stop doing that. I can't stop doing that. I can't stop doing that. 
I can't stop doing anything. So the real problem is that it's not just accepting that we need to de-implement in order to implement something new and better. It is that this process of de-implementing is much more difficult than we thought. So even when principles agree they need to de-implement, it is much harder. And I'm a firm believer if, if people have tried to do something for a long period of time and have failed, it's probably more difficult than you think it is. And that's why I think this, this framework, you know, that's why the book is 400 pages long. It's because it's not simple. There is no simple approach to de-implementation. It actually requires being very cautious, very careful. So you're identifying things that you can actually re-engineer, replace, reduce, whatever, without harming student achievement. So it's about helping schools discover that. And people always want to know what are the best bets? Where should we start? And the really difficult thing is we can't tell you because it'll depend on your context. It'll depend on the room for maneuver that you have. And that's why the book is such a detailed, uh, such a detailed guide. It's helping schools discover things in their context that might be possible to de-implement, but different schools will have different de-implementation paths. And that's why we can't tell you what to do. It, it's not a simple process. Mm, yes. So, so the book isn't the book isn't uh, kind of a recipe of what to do exactly for every school. It's more of a, a process based text that kind of guides readers through this process of identifying. And we're going to go through a number of the stages, but in terms of the four parts, is discovering what to implement, implement, deciding how to do it, uh, de- actually de-implementing, and then kind of the process of re-deciding. Uh, Aaron, uh, throw to you now. The, the other thing I, I, I would add to um, Dylan's excellent introduction is that it isn't necessarily just about uh, removing lower value practices to replace them with higher value practices. Uh, in many contexts, teachers report that they are frazzled and bedraggled, that their workloads are too high. It may, in some times and some places, be acceptable just to remove things for the sake of removing them in order to get some work-life balance, but to just be very careful in how you do that and, and, in, the, and in evaluating the impact of that, that process of removal to ensure that you are not harming student outcomes and student learning in the process, that you are achieving the same level of impact for those learners, but with less time, less motion, and less energy. Hmm. Thanks, Aaron. That can be hard, though, because as you uh, mentioned in the book, we're kind of cognitively primed for addition. Um, did, did you want to tell us a little bit more about how we're cognitively primed for addition and why that makes this idea of de-implementation so hard? Yeah. It's a, it's a good question, Ollie. In fact, well, one of the things that we were really surprised about and that, that Dylan alluded to earlier was how little research there is on the practical or even the theoretical processes of the implementation. And that got us thinking as we, we started exploring this ourselves, whether there could be some sort of cognitive bias that primes us all to think about improvement from an additive perspective. And so as we as we looked at this, we stumbled on a recent study by uh, Gabrielle Adams and colleagues, uh, recently published in Nature, uh, which undertook a number of task-based interventions under experimental conditions with, with a group of large group of participants. And these, these different uh, experiments, participants could either solve the tasks by adding 
or by subtracting features from the environment. And in almost all cases, everyone took an additive approach to the problems that they faced. So adding ingredients, adding uh, bricks to a wonky Lego bridge, um, adding features, uh, whether we're looking at a consultancy task, adding features to a crazy golf course. And it was only when the experimenters primed them and said, hey, there is actually another way that you can do this. You can do this via subtraction, uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, did people, did the penny drop and people say, ah, um, this is something that we could consider as well. So, so on the one hand, it suggests that maybe our default setting is to add, but with uh, a little bit of uh, priming um, and, and repositioning, that it is also perhaps not that difficult to at least think from the perspective of subtraction and of de-implementation as well. That's that's really fascinating, Aaron. And I think of that myself. I think of you know in school that we often had these challenges in science where you had to build a bridge out of chop you know skewers or masking skewers and masking tape or straws or that kind of thing. And you see these kids' bridges and they start off wonky and then they just keep on adding more straws and more tape and it ends up this behemoth that still doesn't hold much. Um, and it met, many many times stripping it back to the skeleton and thinking really more crucially about the fundamentals there. Um, is probably more fruitful. Uh, Dylan? This may be a stretch, but I think you can draw a line from this primacy of addition to this thing that psychologists call loss aversion. We seem to be much more um, sensitive to losses than we are to gains. So, you know, one estimate is that losses hurt twice as much as equivalent gains. And so, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a stretch, but I think we can see why humans might be like that and we want to hang on to what we've got and, and add things. So that's just one possibility about why this is, but we are pretty convinced that the research that we've got suggests that yes, we are cognitively primed for addition and we tend to prefer addition to subtraction. Yeah, that's a great example. And you can imagine if, if it's already scheduled that every student does two hours of homework a night at your school saying, well, we're going to make them do only one hour home homework. It seems like a great loss. But if you've got one hour of homework and you're like, we're going to make every kid do two hours of homework, it's like, oh, that's a that might be a bit much. It's kind of like, it's really not balanced. So that's a good good one to tie it into that idea of loss aversion there, Dylan. Um, even though we are cognitively primed for addition, you do also mention in, a book, in the book that implementation is actually, or de-implementation is actually easier than implementation. Why is that, Aaron? Well, actually, what we suggest is that theoretically it should be easier. Uh, and that is because in implementation, you are having to identify or design a new thing, figure out how to plug it in and then get everyone to do it and get everyone to do it with fidelity and then see whether there is impact from uh, the implementation of said thing. Whereas with some types of de-implementation, you are merely, and I say merely in inverted commas, identifying a thing to remove, to reduce, or to re-engineer. So some existing practice that already exists, and then you're bringing about that reduction. You're, you're not thinking about, oh, how do I design a new initiative to, to bring to life? So it's only when you are engaged in replacement, so you're, you're taking out program X and you're trying to plug in program Y simultaneously, that... Um, the act of de-implementation should be as hard or indeed harder than implementation because you're digging up and planting something at the same time. But 
in reality, when you're trying to reduce uh, or uh, re-engineer or remove something, there's a lot of habit-based drivers and cravings that might make you creep back on autopilot and continue with that prior practice. Even though you have you have said to yourself, you're not going to do this thing, you find yourself, you said, I'm, I'm not going to make my own uh, lesson materials from scratch at night. Um, I'm going to use these, pre, these pre-packaged materials from this, uh, from this off-the-shelf, highly evaluated program uh, so that I can save time. You, uh, maybe at nine o'clock at night, you get this sudden craving to put uh, a, a student resource pack together that, that isn't necessary. Yeah, right. Uh, Dylan? The other thing I think that I've become very keenly aware of in thinking about this over the last couple of years is that our models of implementation are actually rather simplistic. So typically we have a model of implementation that says researchers find stuff out and tell teachers what to do and teachers implement it with more or less fidelity. And you have this research into fidelity of implementation, which I regard as researchers blaming teachers for not doing what the researchers wanted them to do. And it's a real problem in research because if the program only works when implemented with fidelity, you don't know whether it's a a program effect or a teacher quality effect. Because it could be that this program is only implementable by the most amazing teachers, and therefore the positive result is not a program effect at all. But what we also see is that implementation involves teachers taking these ideas on and figuring figuring out a way of making them work in their own context. And so whenever teachers take on research, I think that's a process of knowledge creation, albeit of a distinct and local kind. And therefore, what gets implemented, the result of implementation, is often much more complex and diverse than you, you would actually imagine from hearing that a particular school has implemented program X. Because Program X won't look the same in different schools if it's not just every single teacher doing exactly the same thing with the same textbook. And so implementation, I think, is a lot more complex than people think. And that's why also why de-implementation is, is complex. It may be that the same initiative needs to be de-implemented in different ways in different schools because of the way it was implemented. Hmm. A good point. And that, that complexity, I guess, is in many ways what led to the comprehensiveness of the book uh, it's 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 a tome that's for sure and you've got i don't know how many one two three four five six seven eight nine there's nine stages to this this process split up into to four quadrants that being said it's an incredibly clearly signposted book i must say having the kind of diagram at the start with the section highlighted that we're talking about it really keeps the or it assists uh, keeping the reader oriented so that's fantastic um to help us, unfortunately, we can't show those kind of images in a podcast like this one. So to start us off, Aaron, did you want to give us a bit of a kind of helicopter view of the, the de-implementation model to orient us for the remainder of the conversation? Absolutely. So let, let, let me do that now. So we have uh, within our uh, Making Room for Impact process four key stages. The first is the discover stage. And what you're doing in the discover stage is you are um, you are setting up uh, a backbone team, and an organisational structure, and getting permission from the highest levels within your organisation to undertake a de-implementation inquiry cycle. Once you have done that, you are then postulating. 
So your, uh, your, your backbone team is looking at all of the practices that take place within the school, the amount of time, energy and resource that's invested in those various areas and making some preliminary decisions about the ones within that list that might be ripe for a de-implementation uh, sprint or endeavor. And then after, after they've done that, the next step is to, for the ones that have been identified, so there might be 20 things and there, there's some process by which you get down to three or four that you might think are, are good to look at. Maybe it's homework or lesson planning or parent reporting or student behavior management or data, uh, for, for example. Um, what you're doing in each of those cases is you're seeking to postulate what it is that sustains the existing practices. So in order to improve the future, in order to de-implement and understand um, why it is that people might just maintain those practices, even if they've agreed in principle that they're going to make some changes, it's important to understand what it was that got those things started in the first place. So the beliefs, the history, uh, the incentive structures, uh, even the policy and regulations or people's beliefs about those, those, those areas of policy and regulation. And that gives you uh, some clues about what kind of strategy might work for de-implementation in each area in question. And then once you have worked through that, you then enter the decide phase, which is where you are uh, exploring and agreeing what your de-implementation strategy will be. So for every area that you're looking at, whether it's behavior management or lesson planning or homework uh, or wall display, uh, you are uh, putting it through those four quadrants that I explained earlier. So you're, you're looking and you're saying, could we remove this? Could we reduce this? Could we re-engineer this? Could we replace this? And there might be more than one suggestion that you come up with in each quadrant. So you're looking as widely as possible. Then once you have made a decision about that, and once you have also explored what all those different other background drivers are, the cravings and the muscle memory that might uh, mean that the strategy uh, is not effective once you get going, and once you put some countermeasures in place to overcome those, uh, those potential issues that could cause backsliding, you're developing an evaluation plan, so you're picturing what the future might look like uh, and uh, looking at what indicators you might use to see whether your initiative has been successful. And then once you've done all that, and that this all sounds, this might all sound quite complicated thus far, but this is, if, if, you, if you attend to it carefully, you could do all of this within a couple of days. If you, if you shut yourself away uh, together as a group and, and work through all of your data and engage dialogically. Once you have done all of this, you then get to the de-implement stage where you're bringing your de-implementation plan to life. So you're pushing ahead. It might be one thing or it might be several things you're seeking to de-implement at the same time. And then after you've been doing that uh, for a bit, uh, maybe a few weeks or, or, or more, you're entering the re-decide phase where you are looking at the data and you're making decisions. And you're almost slaloming backwards and forwards. So you're, uh, you're, you're going for a, a spurt of de-implementation. Then you pivot along to look at the data and say, what does this tell us? Should we continue with this? Are there some variations that we need to make to our, our plan? Should we stop this thing uh, and go back and select the next cab off the rank? Um, and then finally, at the end, you're making a decision uh, in what we call the propel step, uh, 
where you are deciding after a long sprint, a, lo a long spurt of de-implementation, whether uh, you should close down your de-implementation de backbone organization and just go back to your other activities, or whether you should keep it going uh, and find something else to de-implement uh, as well. Great. Thanks, Aaron. So we've got these kind of four four stages, discover, decide, de-implement, and re-decide. You've got uh, four strategies, which are remove, reduce, re-engineer, and replace. And within each of those uh, discover, decide, de-implement, and re-decide quadrants, we have a number of steps. So some of the quadrants have th up to three steps, and one of them just has one step. And so we'll move through a, a number of them. Now, the first thing is permit, which I think is a really uh, interesting point that you emphasize in the book. You kind of talk about things like the, the shame guilt loop, and this relates to the idea of loss aversion and things like that. And you really emphasize that senior levels of a school must not just give permission to de-implement to those uh, tasks within to, to, to people more broadly, but they must actually be explicit. There is, there is a mandate to de-implement. And I guess that could be communicated with um, things such as mentioning workload and, and mental health and things like that, and as well as student outcomes and, and obvious, more obvious kind of uh, levers to, to lean on there. I think that's absolutely crucial, really important. A question I have is kind of face the other way. If there's a teacher or a middle leader who, who feels like there is a real need to de-implement something or a, a range of things uh, at their school, is there any advice that you would have for them to generate, I guess, what would you what you would call a bottom-up mandate to de-implement? So I, I think firstly, depending on the context, there's likely to be quite a few things that are totally in their control of or their bailiwick within the, the private kingdom of their classroom anyway, that they could do with, with the door shut and, and get on and get on with those things. And so they could focus on those if there is no uh, wider appetite within the school for de-implementation. But I think that they could also seek to influence upwards because some of the findings from our research about the limited relationship between the quality of, of or the quantity of inputs and outcomes within systems. So we, we looked at lots of things like, for example, uh, the, the number of hours of instruction, uh, the length of the school year. Uh, the size of the, the size of the number of children in classrooms, um, the amount of funding that is expended in education systems, and we found in many of these cases that there's a relatively limited relationship between these inputs and the uh, various educational returns. And I think it could be uh, quite useful for, uh, for for classroom teachers, for practitioners, to be sharing that information with their leadership teams to to, to influence upwards and say, look. Um, it isn't necessarily the case that more leads to more. There's lots of data that suggests that there are other systems and other contexts that are doing less, but also achieving more through that act of doing less. So perhaps this is something that we could consider as well. Okay, so you're suggesting trying to find some kind of relevant data um, that you can then use to, to kind of back up your argument. D Dylan, what would you add to that? Well, I think that we've written the book. So as... as focused at the whole school level. But I think individual teachers, although they wouldn't be able to set up a, a implementation team, individual teachers would actually be able to find lots of things that are relevant just in terms of researching your own practice and where am I getting my benefits from. But I think that ultimately, I think our pitch would be 
anybody with a leadership position in a school ought to be thinking about this. And if they're not, then they need to be. And so therefore the advice I would say to the young teacher is uh, buy a copy of the book and give it to your principal because that it is really their job. I mean, I think that principals don't have complete power, but what they do have is the power to set priorities and to say, you know, we want to be focused. We want you not to be wasting your time. We want you to be doing the things that have the maximum benefit for our students. And therefore any organization that's serious about improving outcomes for young people ought to be saying, how can we do this without driving our teachers into the ground? Great. So a couple of approaches there. Find some, either some published or even some local evidence about the the efficacy or lack thereof of some things that may be worth considering implementing and then provide some kind of resources to that, to leadership a book or maybe even a podcast about de-implementation uh, to, to begin the, the conversation. Aaron? And, and, and what I was just going to add is that, that that's exactly what we've uh, sought to do uh, in the first couple of chapters of, of the Making uh, Room for Impact book is, is really to present that evidence, uh, those statistical summaries and that analysis to show that there is, there, yes, of course, there is a relationship between inputs. You know, you, you, you can't run a school on one minute a day, um, but there are some systems that have 6,000 hours of instruction between uh, in, uh, kindergarten and and, uh, and the age of 15, and some that have 11,000 hours. And uh, ironically, it's the ones that have 6,000 hours of instruction, which equates to five and a half years less of instruction versus the, the systems with 11,000 hours that, that do better. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. And just to emphasize that before coming back to Dylan, if we look at Australia, we're kind of looking at our PISA results, average performance in reading, maths and science. Looking at Australia, we've got an average of 11,000 hours of instruction. Cut that almost in half and you've got a country like Slovenia who's doing, getting the same results in PISA. Uh, drop it by 25% and you've got somewhere like the Netherlands uh, who's again outperforming us in PISA uh, with with less instruction. So it, and then you know cut it in, still cut it in Australia in half. Uh, find you find Estonia and Finland and Poland who are all significantly outperforming Australia. So it's obviously not just the number of hours. Um, it's actually quite you can get phenomenal results with with much reduced hours. Dylan, yeah, that broad scale data is indicative. You know, it could be that that's they really are wasting time, or it could be that they've got broader curricula. So we're not going to say that this is definitely definitive. What we're going to say is this suggests there's something to explore. And I think that's our premise. It could be that a school is actually doing everything it can. It's very lean. There is no way you can actually get better results without actually spending more time um, with, with the students. But we think that's unlikely. Um, in the language of the business world, they call this Pareto analysis. So Alfredo Pareto, uh, he's, wi he's widely known for coining the 80-20 rule. He pointed out that 80% of Italy's wealth was owned by 20% of the population. But his big idea was this idea that before you ask for more money in, say, taxation, be sure you're spending the money that you've got in the most effective way. So any change that can make at least one person better off without making somebody else worse off is a Pareto improvement. So can we make the pupils and students better off without making the teachers worse off? That's the idea of a Pareto improvement. And, you know, a school could be Pareto optimal. It could be that the only way to improve things is to spend more money, 
or to have teachers working more hours or whatever. But I think that it's, that's unlikely. And this, the, the book is basically a, a, an attempt to support schools in this inquiry into, for each hour that we have, could we spend that hour in a different way that would either do no harm or produce a better benefit for our students? It's a, it's, it's a great question and I mean I, I really like the title Making Room for Impact because I think it captures that idea uh, fantastically and I think we've we've covered a lot in this brief discussion about uh, p- permitting that is hopefully enough to get people started along the discussion of could it be possible uh, well hopefully it's pretty obvious that it's possible that there's things we could do that we could be uh, generating savings from and uh you know, hopefully it's enough to help, help people to start thinking where might we start, which is exactly where we head to next, which is the second step, step 1.2, which is prospect. Aaron, how is prospecting like playing Jenga? So if you um, think about all of the different activities that you undertake um, in the time that you have within your school, the lesson planning, curriculum, data management, homework, parental reporting, whatever those things are, you can think about them as being uh, Jenga blocks within, uh, or you can think about them from the perspective of being Jenga blocks within a Jenga tower. And um, if you think about the actual game of Jenga, the purpose of the game is to select blocks, uh, wiggle them, remove them without the tower falling down. And you can think of the uh, act of looking at your school system for things to de-implement as being as being very similar. So you are mapping all of your own local Jenga blocks, uh, which might be stacked in, uh, in in different ways. So that means that some things that you could pull out that would have no impact, another school, that block might be very critical to how they do things in their particular way, in their context. And if they pulled that block out, it could bring their whole tower crumbling down. So the first step is to uh, identify what all of your blocks are, what what are the things that you do, your your list of activities, and um, how much time you are investing in each of those. Because that gives you a sense of, um, I guess, what you would call your low-hanging fruit, the areas that are worth you exploring for de-implementation, because they take up many, many hours of your time in a given day and in a given week. Hmm. Can I just add one more point here? Because I think we can extend the Jenga metaphor a bit further. So yes, we might be able to take out this little block without affecting the stability of the tower, unless there's an earthquake. And so sometimes the thing that you actually take out may not do any harm right now, but it does make the, the school system slightly less resilient. So it's just very, very complicated. And you know, we can say, oh, and so now I'm gonna, people are playing playing a bingo with this podcast, will hear me mention Chesterton's Fence. So G.K. Chesterton wrote a, sh- a short story about a man who sees a gate across a road and wants to get rid of it. And Chesterton asks, well, why was it put there? And the man says, I don't know. And Chesterton says, well, in that case, I will not allow you to remove it. Go away and think. And when you can tell me why it was put there, I may allow you to destroy it. So this is part of the, the, stay, the next step, which is, you know, figuring out why those pieces are there. Because if you don't understand why they're there, they may be serving a function that you haven't yet appreciated. And that's, you know, this, this Jenga tower analogy, I think is quite powerful. Because mm. even though the tower doesn't fall down, it might be now less resilient. And mm. I think, I think it's, 
Thanks, Elon. I look forward to talking about Chesterton's fence uh, more. More, I think it's a fantastic principle that um, I've managed to come across in the past as well. It's a really, really interesting idea. Um, in terms of Jenga, it's interesting in a couple of ways. I think it is a powerful metaphor because we can kind of imagine, and actually I was just thinking then, as a way to kind of brainstorm about this, you know, there's a cognitive load principle called randomness as genesis, which basically means, you know, do random if you, you can approach things in a random way brainstorming is an example and you can often come up with some reasonable ideas because it kind of forces a constraint you could actually literally get a game of jenga and write on the jenga blocks the different things that you do at school homework two hours a week etc and play a game of jenga and kind of pull blocks out and go all right i've pulled out homework is there anything we could cut out in terms of homework um without the tower falling over it could just be a kind of randomness as genesis kind of a kind of a strategy uh which could be interesting what one um, potentially one limit of, and I just love your thoughts on this, of the Jenga metaphor is within Jenga, if you remove any block, it necessarily reduces the structural integrity of the tower. Whereas with de-implementation, you might actually reduce, remove something and it might actually increase the structural integrity of, of the edifice. What do you think? And you're, you're, you're right on it. In fact, you, you might not be removing something in its entirety um, anyway. What, what you might be doing, because uh, remove is only one of the four strategies, uh, you might be reducing it. So you might be chiseling bits out of the block. You might be hollow in the middle because there, there are bits of it that are just superfluous. Uh, or you, you know, therefore you might be re-engineering it or you might be replacing it with a more efficient substance you say oh we, we, we don't it doesn't need to be made out of wood it could be made out of pipe cleaner that would be that would be perfectly adequate within our context it would cost less it would take us less time as well um, so there's, there's there's kind of multiple ways that you could approach it so when you're thinking oh well, I'll, I'll pull the homework block out you're probably not going to be just removing homework. You might be reducing it, you might be re-engineering it, or you might be replacing some aspects of it to save you time and save you motion. Good point. So if a school is, other than playing a game of Jenga, if they are trying to identify low-hanging fruit and, and what they should be focusing on, where should they be starting? How, how, how do they start this discussion and how do they start, start to home in on, oh, actually, these might actually be some things worth cutting out or de-implementing or removing, reducing, replacing or re-engineering? So the, the easiest way if they, if they wanted to do the process quickly would be just to get around to a, a whiteboard and almost brainstorm all the things that they spend time on and rank them in the order of how much time they think they spend in total on those activities and just do that as a group guesstimate. Another way might be to uh, look at the ATD implementation examples uh, that we have at the back of the book, uh, some of which, frankly, might make you fall off the back of your chair because they're, uh, they're the sorts of things that would make you take a sharp intake of breath and just circle the ones that they think mm, we could get away with doing this in our context um, and explore those in more detail. There are other things that could be done as well. So people could do a time study. Uh, there are lots of free apps that you can download from uh, various smartphone app stores where you code uh, the things that you do in the day and you press a button every time you start them and stop them and you can get a nice graph of uh, the exact amount of time right down to the minute or even the second uh, so that you can understand those, those activities in more detail. You could also look uh, at your local regulations uh, and compare those to the things that you are currently doing within your school. Because sometimes the regulations in our head do not match the regulations on paper. Sometimes we have over-engineered and we have misunderstood what is necessary. So something where a government agency might require us to spend 
relatively little time on it, we end up in our head imagining it's, it's much more. And I've, I've had various conversations with principals in New Zealand, for example, quite recently, um, where there were things they wanted to do that they thought they could not do um, because they were against the rules. But there were no such prohibitions. It was that there was that distinction between their beliefs about the rules rather than what those rules said in black and white on the page. Let's go. I think I think that's one of the most common ones, and I have come across that so many times in education. There will be some sort of frustrating, inefficient process that we're doing, and you you go to someone who's a bit more senior, and like, why are we doing this thing? And they're like, oh, we have to. It's part of the part of what we do. And you say where, and they say, oh, in sometimes they say, I don't know. We've always just been doing it, but I, so I just assume that's what we were supposed to be doing. But sometimes I'll direct you somewhere. And often I have actually gone to regulations or messaged the department and said, can you show me the, the actual document that says this? You read it and it's like, oh, you don't have to do that at all. It's You only have to like tick this one small box and we could tick that small box in a number of ways and much more efficiently than we currently are. So I, that's definitely one of my favorite points that you made in the book about really diving into what you're specifically being asked to, to, to achieve. Dylan? I remember having a conversation with John Coles, who at the time was Director General, basically the senior civil servant in charge of schools in England. And he was telling me he did an exercise where he had a group of head teachers, principals, um, and he asked them, is, is there anything that you'd like to do that would improve student uh, achievement that you're currently prevented from doing by regulations? And they made their suggestions, and he discovered that 75% of them they already had the authority to do. So that's a, just a, it's an anecdote, but it's quantifying how prevalent this problem might be. We can't do this because, well, of course, that might be true, but it might not. And so that's another good place to start in terms of figuring out. And, and you know, again, it comes back to the, the four R's. This is a re-engineer. Okay, so we have to provide this assurance. Could we do it in a different way? It wouldn't be quite so labor-intensive. Mm. Yeah, that's great. And often it's just that small upfront cost of actually reading the regulations to get your head around it and then thinking a little bit flexibly and then you can just have massive, massive savings down the road. Uh, Another key thing to think about in terms of prospecting and identifying things that you might want to begin the the implementation process with is the idea of of acceptability. Uh, You know, I mean, there's regulations, but the other side of that coin is generally acceptability. Are, are our staff, are our, is our, are our team, do, how do our community and students feel about potentially removing this thing um, or re- reducing, replacing or re-engineering it? Um, something that was I found very interesting in your book was you talked about two schools of thought around this idea of buy-in. And so there's one school of thought which thinks it's absolutely crucial and if you want to make any change, you need to make sure you establish buy-in. And then there's another one which sees buy-in as, as a bit of a myth. Aaron, can you talk us through this? Uh, what do we know about the importance of buy-in and what do these two schools suggest? So I, I, I think the long and short of it is we, we don't know enough about it, uh, but there are provocations that we should consider in both directions. So uh, when, when I first started out in this, in this game uh, or this important work of education improvement, uh, many, many years ago, um, the kind of prevailing wisdom is that you should always seek to get buy-in or what the Japanese call washing the roots, uh, socialising the idea uh, before you, you, you get moving and ensure that everyone's comfortable uh, with, with what's going to happen uh, b- b- before, you, before you unleash it. 
And then uh, a couple of years ago, I was working with Doug Reeves on another book project. We were we were looking at uh, the science of implementation, and he threw a hand grenade out uh, that, that that made me uh, startled and made me rethink. He'd been doing some work on this with Tom Gaskin, and he said, "Look, Aaron, uh, buy-in is a is is a myth." The trouble is when you engage with people, um, they often just backslide into their pre-existing beliefs because they don't know what the other thing is uh, and they don't know that it can be it, it could be better. So it's almost like, I don't know, imagine I was back in 1800 and I was riding a horse and someone, or, or 1900 rather, and I was riding a horse and someone said to me, hey, I've got this thing, it's called a motor car, would you like one? Well, I don't know what it is, I've never seen it. I, I don't know that it's better. Someone needs to actually put me in it and, and, and make me have a go in it for me to understand that there are um, some significant benefits of it over uh, the horse that I'm currently using. So there is a there's a sense that um, perhaps seeing is believing. So it's almost being uh, forced, but in a very supported way to engage in the change, then see the impact of it and see that it is positive. And then later, those beliefs uh, change uh, in, in tandem as well. Dylan. And sometimes you actually have to get it working for it to be even plausible. So James Besson talks about the adoption of electric motors in factories. And so for us, you know, typically factories had a steam engine that powered all the, mo the, the machines in the, in the factory. And there were a series of belts that were running to each machine. And they replaced the steam engine with an electric motor that had the same system of belts and pulleys. And it was probably about 50 years before they realized you could actually have a small electric motor at each bench rather than having everything everything being you know, driven by a, a central engine. And so sometimes you actually have to get things in, implemented so that people can see the benefit. And you know, people like Steve Jobs never consulted with people what, the, what kinds of things they wanted from Apple. He decided what he would produce and people then adopted them. So I think it goes both ways, I think, and I think we shouldn't be too dramatic, dogmatic on either side of this. Sometimes it is essential to get buy-in because it's so closely related to people's professional identities. Sometimes you have to paint a vision of what the world could be like that people haven't been able to figure out for themselves. Mm, that's good. Um, and some people sometimes talk about it as spending chips. You know, you spend a chip and you, you ask people like, look, you know, I know you're not you're not 100% convinced about this as yet, but let's just give it a go. We're going to try it for this amount of time, and this is what that trial is going to look like. And at the end of that trial, we can have a discussion and see how you're feeling. That's that's a that's related to this approach, Dylan. I think Stephen Covey does this very well. Basically, he talks about investing in a bank account. You know, it's actually up to the leaders to invest in the relationships they have with the members of staff in the school, so that when you've made enough of an investment, when they know that you care about them and about them, outcomes for their students, then you can sometimes push it. But if you haven't got those working relationships, then that's not going to work. So it gets very complex and very kind of difficult to quantify. But I think there's no doubt that sometimes you can actually, if you're sure that this is right, then I think the leader's job is to push for what they think is right, even if people can't see the need for it right now. Hmm. Couldn't agree more. So that's, that's the prospecting step, which is all about... Uh, trying to identify potential low-hanging food or areas for re reduction. And uh, Aaron, you talked about, or you both talked about a whole host of different approaches to that from, um, you know, playing playing an actual game of Jenga with uh, the ideas on the, on the blocks to kind of doing an audit of what you're doing and how much time that's taking, uh, things like cost-benefit analysis, time studies, 
uh, one we didn't talk about that much was the idea of staff voice, just doing a bit of a, a kind of a survey and things like that. And, and there's many more uh, examples of that in the book. And in many ways, one, that was one of my favorite chapters, actually, because it did go into a lot of detail about how you might and you had, you know, questioning examples of questions and things you might ask staff. So if people are interested in de-implementation, I'd particularly uh, encourage them to pay attention to that, that chapter in terms of throwing the net really wide and thinking, where might we start? Um, once you have narrowed it down to kind of a few areas that you think might be worth looking at in a little bit more detail, you, you suggest this idea of postulation and step 1.3, still in the discover uh, phase. Uh, postulation relates to, as Dylan was talking about earlier, finding out the, the beliefs that lie and the reasons that lie beneath that current practice. Uh, within a school context, though, what is... Can you help us, Aaron, understand a little bit more about Chesterton's fence within a school context? What are some of the things that we might find out when we do dig a little bit deeper? So um, just to put this uh, back into that into that wider context, because there is often a history and a backstory and a set of beliefs around why the behaviours or, or the things that you're exploring to de-implement got started, you need to understand them thoroughly in order to have a better sense of whether this is something you can push forward with at all and to also give you some uh, insights into whether removing, reducing, re-engineering or replacing uh, might be a, a, a key best fit strategy in your context. So what you could do is you could you, you could do this process uh, inductively so you could go out and talk to your your your, your staff members you could say well um, uh, tell me about x tell me about how you define it uh, whether it's homework so what, what what are the what are the sub components of it well i um I, I i develop assignments i distribute them to students uh the students do the work i uh, receive them back i mark them it takes me this amount of time and then i give feedback through these uh through through this channel or through that channel um and then you can ask them, well, uh, why was it they started doing it? How they would feel about stopping it? What they might think if they stopped it? What different stopping strategies there could be? Because uh, it's not just stopping. It might be uh, reducing or re-engineering. Um, and then ask them about what they think the, uh, the risks and mitigations uh, might be to, to, to all of those things that could potentially be derailers. And then you could begin to uh, gather that up. It's more time-consuming to do it this way because you've got to go around your whole uh, your whole faculty and ask these questions and find some way of uh, synthesizing that into a narrative. And if you are trying to do this, for you, you might have identified four or five areas that you want to do de-implementation inquiry into. So you're asking these people about these these five areas uh, simultaneously, but it, but it can be very very useful and instructive to do so. So uh, another way that you could go about it is deductively. You could shut yourself into a room you know, with your backbone team and you could say, let's think about all of the potential reasons behind why we got going with this thing. Uh, and we could think about it from the perspective of the regulations. Uh, are there regulations that require us to do this? Uh, and do they require us to do it in the way that we're doing it? The history. So how, how did it get started? Um, the beliefs. What do people think about this practice? The structures, are there things about the way that we organise the school that um, make this practice more likely? So one of the examples we gave in the book was about uh, removing wall display, for example. Quite, quite a small thing, but um, that potentially takes some time. Well, you might have uh, boards on the wall 
uh, and, and that then primes people that they should fill these boards with, uh, with wall display. So, so there might be something about the environment. Uh, there might also be something about the consequences or the perceived consequences. People might think that they're being naughty if they if they stop doing a certain thing. Or there might be certain incentives, other wider incentives that uh, that, that keep them primed on different behaviours. So, so what you can do as a group is you can use these six buckets, the regulations, the history, the beliefs, the structures, the consequences uh, and the incentives to start mapping out what you think of the uh, what, what's the narrative about why people do this in the school. And then go and chat to a few of your colleagues and see whether that makes sense to them. Uh, so that you, uh, you you can validate or change that theory, that theory of the present. Um, and that then gives you insights about, can we, should we even touch this thing? Or should we go back and look at something else uh, instead? Or if we decide we can touch it, what would be the uh, most amenable way? Removing, reducing, re-engineering or replacing. That's great. And I, I, I did find that um, six buckets framework really helpful thinking about, you know, what are the regulations that are sustaining or the perceived regulations that are sustaining this? What's the history that's sustaining it? What are the beliefs, structures, consequences and incentives? Just a really nice six part framework to kind of uh, deductively dissect what might be sustaining a practice. Dylan. So I think it's also important to recognize that these might not be irrational beliefs. The teachers' beliefs about what sustains these practices might be quite rational. So one of my favorite examples is um, in the United States, it's very common to give missing work a score of a zero, which makes no sense at all because 70 is a passing score. So giving students a score of zero for missing work is just a quite disproportionate penalty and it makes it almost impossible for them to pass the course. And Tom Gusky and Doug Reeves have been railing against this for 30 years. I keep on pointing out, yeah, you've been saying what a stupid idea this is for 30 years, and yet it still persists. So why is that? And of course, the reason is because teachers feel that if they don't have these quite draconian punishments, students won't do the work. So what you have to realize is that teachers are using these as sanctions. And if you take these sanctions away, you better give them something else to make sure that the students do the work. And so often, it's about realizing that these, you know, if you take this stuff away from teachers, it will make their lives more difficult. It's not just they're just clinging on to old ideas. They're smart enough to realize that you will make their lives more difficult. Mm-hmm. So then you've got to think about, well, what else could we actually put in place to get the same effect that we're getting from giving a disproportionate penalty for missing work? Mm-hmm. It, it's coming back to that uh, idea of mechanism mechanisms and you know what functions that actually serving it and uh in kind of in the the world of business creation startups and things like that people often really emphasize don't look at the solutions that you've got don't focus on solutions you need to focus instead on problems what is this actually solving so in that case the solution which everyone was focusing on was uh uh you know the penalty the zero percent penalty but the 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 problem was that you know that what's the lever that we can pull to help students help motivate students and another thing is you know if someone says they want a quarter inch drill bit this is a quote from Theodore Levitt they're not they don't actually want a quarter inch drill bit they actually want a quarter inch hole right so there's probably different ways to get there they believe that quarter inch drill bit is probably the best way but there may be another way if, if, even if you don't have a quarter inch drill bit so I think I think that's a, a great example that does bring me to one one portion of the book that I, I wanted to read out for discussion. Um, 
So this was towards the end of the postulate phase. You've written, these insights now lead to two possible directions. And when we say these, these insights, we mean after you've kind of done the, the dig deeping. Backwards or forwards, if after having explained what sustains the existing practices that you are seeking to de-implement, you conclude that the roots run too deep. Oh, sorry, the, the roots that keep them in place run too deep and that they are too difficult to dig up, then your next step would be go back to 1.2, prospect to select the next cab off the rank. Um, did you want to add anything to that? I think just that um, you, you've kind of got three forks in the road, right? So fork one is you say, well, shucks, we, we just can't do anything here. The, the, as, you, as you said, the regulations or the kind of the regulations prohibit any movement is so fossilized. We, we can't we can't make any change in this area without, uh, you know, without without being um, smacked by the inspectorate or, or government agencies of some kind. Or everyone's so dead set against the change that we'll have, you know, hordes of people turning up at the school with burning pitchforks and uh, and it's going to be very difficult to, uh, to to address that and in which case you'd say let's not touch this there are there are possibly easier things that we could focus on instead or you know the second the second fork in the road would be maybe to say well it, it's complicated the regulations give us some leeway um, but there's maybe a lot of beliefs and backstory that we'd have to uh, to, to, to rile against to, uh, to to get some motion uh, and to get some movement in this area Maybe it's only worth doing it, though, if we'd save a lot of time without harming student learning. So if, if, we, if we're going to have to uh, create a lot of kerfuffle, but we're going to save tens of hours a, a week, maybe that's worth doing. And then the, the third fork in the road is, I guess, what you might think of as the, uh, the, the low hanging fruit. So the regulations are loose. Everyone says, yeah, I'd like to do that thing. It seems like a fun thing to stop doing uh, or to re-engineer in some way. I'm very open to it. Um, and in which case, it, it is probably very wise to push at that door, unless it's something that's really small and tangentry, you know, something that's, that's kind of like the equivalent strategy to smoking one less, less cigarette or, uh, you know, eating one less bite of a large piece of cake. Um, so that, that's the other danger is you, you end up doing uh, lots of little things that don't really add up to very much. And then people forget that they're doing them. There's almost a, there's almost perhaps a case to say, let's let's focus on one big endeavor that might be painful. Um, but which will save a significant amount of time for, for all involved once once we get over the nickels. Mm. Dylan? Just to take a concrete example, um, many private schools, independent schools, uh, provide parents with a, quite a large number of grades. Uh, it, it's common to have at least one grade per subject per week. And that takes up a huge amount of te teacher time. The difficulty is that you'd have to... end undertake a really substantial program of parental education to get the parents to move away from that model. And, and they, you know, in, in a private school, certainly the principal is going to see these parents as the client. And so it's going to be sometimes quite difficult, whereas you might have much more room for maneuver in a, in a state school, for example. So, you know, I think that we have to understand that sometimes it's just, it's just going to be too hard. It, the amount of saving isn't going to be enough to justify the kind of political capital that we'll have to burn mm. in order to actually achieve this. And so it's never just a kind of cost-benefit analysis. It's also a much more complex, socially embedded um, consideration. Mm. Yeah, that, that's a fantastic point. And coming back to that kind of spinning chips metaphor, um, you need to yeah weigh that up as well. Um, this, this was a part that I... 
and you you've both covered it quite well there. This was the one part of the book where I was like, oh, I'm not not 100% convinced by this, and that's because I felt like that passage did suggest that if the roots run deep, then you should always pick something else. Essentially, I'm sure that's not what you you meant, but that's kind of what was written. Whereas I think you know, there's two reasons that roots run deep, as as you're obviously aware. One is for good reason because that you know it's it's backed up and it's rational, and one is because it's some kind of cultural shibboleth that you know is a long-held but outdated view that actually needs to really be addressed and so a good 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 example of that it could be kind of uh balanced literacy or something like that that it's it's lots of people believe in it it's got a long cultural history but it's really doing damage to our students and we actually do need to spend a lot of cultural capital and it is a huge lever that we need to 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 address um so yeah i think that was something that that was just something that jumped out to me in in reading dylan well as we've made clear in the book, you can often mitigate the impact of the changes. But the problem is mitigation also takes time. So it's just an incredibly complicated set of calculations. Yes, we, we could actually get away with this by undertaking a massive parental education campaign, but that might take up more time than we're saving by actually reducing the amount of grading. So it's, it's there's never going to be a hard and fast solution. And... Mm. I don't think we would go and say, don't do this because it's the, the roots run too deep. It's not because the roots are too deep. It's because doing something about it, addressing the depth of the roots, would actually be counterproductive because it would take up more time than we'd save. Mm. And, um, and, uh, and I think, Ollie, you're, you're also right that um, sometimes, in, in, well, in sometimes in some places, the existing way of doing things might actually be the best way of doing things. It, it might be that it does take a lot of time and it takes a lot of useful time that contributes significantly to student learning. So, all, so coming back to Dylan's example of Chesterton's fence, it might be that in certain contexts, that fence is the best thing that, that uh, you could have, that money could buy and that you could put up because there's a horde of bulls uh, the other side of the field. It's important to keep them away from the passers-by. Uh, and and that, that's why it's there. So you, you, you do not want to remove it. And that's why it's important that you do go through this process of postulation because you, you might conclude that, this is this is fine. We this is the way we do things around here. It's good that we continue doing this thing, or you might conclude there are some changes that that can be made um, and start to think about how to bring those to life. And the bulls might not be in the field right now because they're only put there in the summer. So sometimes you can't see the purpose of this because the situation now doesn't require the fence. But then at a different time of the year, maybe the bulls are in the field and therefore the fence is necessary. So again, that's why. We, we are so kind of insistent on that rigorous analysis of what sustains these things to minimize the likelihood that something is removed when actually it's quite important to the functioning of the organization. Yeah, I think it's an absolutely fantastic and imperative thing to to emphasize. And I think it's fantastic how much you did emphasize it, really digging deep. And this was actually probably one of my other favorite chapters in terms of the depth to which you, you went, the depth that you went to about specifying different ways that you can try to get to the heart of uh, what's sustaining these practices, what beliefs, uh, and so on. It also relates to kind of that comment you were saying there, Dylan, you know, the time it takes to to change it, change hearts and minds might not be worth the time you save. And another good point you emphasize in the book is often there will be kind of a valley, some people call it a valley of latent potential, where you instigate a change or, or reduction or a replacement and so on, and you actually don't see any positive 
benefits for a long time. You spoke about that with the kind of electric engine in factories example before, Dylan. Do you, if you want to speak to that? Well, I mean, sometimes you have to go backwards to go forwards. So one of my favorite examples is the problem of getting the fox, the goose, and the corn across the other side of the river, where you can't have more than two of them in the boat with you, and you can't leave the fox with the, with the goose, or you can't leave the goose with the corn. And a lot of people struggle with that problem because the solution involves taking some things over to the other side, but then bringing things you've already taken over back. And so the whole idea that you have to take a step backwards to go forwards is something that we find quite difficult. And it may be to do with we are positively primed for addition, but anything that requires making things more difficult to begin with is likely to be resisted. Uh, it may it may be difficult to actually see that this is worth doing, and it may be necessary to take those steps just to actually unlock future action. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in return, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to the spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This month's summary will include definitions of de-implementation, why this book is helpful and why it's needed now how we're cognitively primed for addition rather than subtraction, the importance of providing a mandate for de-implementation, how prospecting is like playing Jenga, and Aaron and Dylan's top pieces of advice on effectively identifying opportunities for de-implementation, contrasting beliefs about the importance of buy-in, what is Chesterton's fence and how does it relate to de-implementation, and much, much more. And if you've been thinking about signing up as a patron for a while now, now is a great time to do it. This is because I've just released a new online course on practical classroom management. And if you sign up as a patron before April 1st, you'll get some serious discounts on this course. Firstly, if you decide to support the podcast for five Australian dollars per month, about the price of a cup of coffee, you'll end up getting the course for 50% off. This is a saving of $25. So you'll essentially be getting your first five months of ERRR podcast summaries for free. Or if you decide to support the podcast for $14.50 Aussie dollars per month, you get the Practical Classroom Management course valued at $50 absolutely free. And you'll get access to bonus ERRR content such as monthly members-only podcast episodes that give you access to some of the behind-the-scenes discussions that I have with educators from around the world. So if you've been meaning to sign up for a while, if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode, and if you want significantly discounted or free access to my Practical Classroom Management online course, sign up before April 1st for all these benefits to support the show and to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, let's jump straight back into this episode of the ERRR podcast. All right, so we've talked about permit, uh, the importance of making sure there's a mandate for change. We've talked about prospect, different ways of identifying potential areas of focus for de-implementation. We've talked about postulate, which relates to Chesterton's fence and digging deep to understand uh, what sustains the practices that could potentially be implemented. Uh, that was all in Discover. We now move into the idea or the, the second phase, which is decide. And the first part of decide is the idea of propose, selecting high-level 
de-implementation strategies. Could you give us a bit of an overview of, of what happens in 2.1 proposed, please, Aaron? Okay. So, Ollie, by, by this stage, you, you will have whittled down. So, so you, you might have uh, started with uh, 20 things, 20 Jenga blocks that you have identified as potential areas. And, and through uh, the analysis and through the, the, the Chesterton Spence uh, work, understanding why these processes exist and what the implications are of, uh, of doing something different in those areas, you've almost put them through the, uh, through the ringer. And then at the end of that, you will have decided, um, would making a change in this area cause harm? Would it be acceptable? Would it be easy? Could it save us time? And you would have narrowed down maybe to uh, a small handful of areas that you want to progress as de-implementation priorities. And those are the ones that you would be looking at in the decide phase. And one of the key things that you would be doing here is using that four R's framework that uh, that we outlined earlier, and uh, for each area, you're asking those those four questions. Well, could we remove it? Could we reduce it? Could we re-engineer it? And could we replace it? And you're working as a group to lay out all of the different strategies um, that could be amenable for the, the target area in question. So I don't know, say it was homework, you might say, well, could we remove it? Well, well maybe we could stop giving homework to all students. Maybe that'd be a bad idea, probably would be a bad idea, but let's, let's at least lay it on the table because they, they, there should be no taboo uh, areas. We, we, should, we should lay out all of the possibilities so that we can discuss them and we can think about the, uh, the, the strengths and negative aspects of them in turn. Could we reduce it? Well, maybe we could say we're not going to set homework the week before school holidays. Maybe we'll uh, reduce the number of homework assignments we give per week. Or maybe we'll reduce the size of the homework assignment so it takes less time to set it and less time to mark it. Could we re-engineer the homework? Well, maybe we could um, uh, get the students to mark it themselves. We could have peer marking. Or maybe we could have homework reviews actually taking place during class time uh, with verbal feedback provided to the students by the teacher. And then could we replace it? Well, we could maybe use an off-the-shelf package so that we don't have to design the homework. We're, we're partially replacing it with, with, a, uh, with, with a package of assignments. Or maybe we could fully replace it with uh, an automated intelligent tutoring machine that, that, that children use at home in their own time and that provides uh, useful dashboard data back to the teacher as well. So there's all of these different ways. Some of them uh, might make you nod in agreement. Oh, yeah, that sounds like a good thing we could do in our school. Others may make you shake your head. And you might find that in different schools, people are nodding and shaking their heads at exactly the same suggestion because what would work well in one context might not work very well in another because their setup and their arrangements are, are very, very different. And so the idea is that you lay these out and you engage in the dialogue about the opportunity costs of doing these things to select the strategy that would be best fit for you and your school. That's great. So you're kind of you you're essentially making rough plans. You're not getting to concrete plans, but you're kind of discussing options for each of these two, three, four, maybe five areas. You're thinking, what if we removed it, reduced it, replaced it, re-engineered it? That's the idea of the kind of proposal. You're proposing potential ways forward. 
we're still in the decide phase. The next step after we've kind of proposed some some plans is the prepare stage in which you develop explicit de-implementation action plan or plans. Tell us about this one, Aaron. So um, what you're doing, so, so by, by the end of the the, uh, the stage that you were just in, propose, you've, uh, you've selected one or more strategies. You've also looked at what the cravings and triggers and things are that keep those existing strategies in place and what you could do to remediate them. And then what you're doing uh, during prepare is, is, is almost more simple. Um, because, or, or at least less conceptual, you're laying out step by step the delivery chain of A to B to C to D to impact or to de-implementation that you would go through to bring that, that strategy to life. So, so you're, you're, you're getting into the details, you're saying, what are we going to do? When are we going to do it? Who is going to do it? How are they going to do it? And uh, how, how are we going to monitor uh, that, that that has taken place? And a second thing that we suggest that you do during this stage as well is that you stress test your plan before liftoff. So we, we, we look very carefully at um, uh, research in the healthcare implementation side sector. There's a lot of really good research on the implementation side there. And what they consistently found was that lots of things got implemented and then later, everyone found that they were stepping into bear traps. They go, ouch, ouch, um, and that these, these, these things didn't work. And then they abandoned the plans that they were in the midst of implementing. But that if they had stopped to think before they started, that many of the problems that they would confront during implementation, or in our case, de-implementation, could be preempted uh, and, and, pre, uh, and, and pre-acknowledged with some countermeasures considered before everyone got started uh, on, on the practice of, of, of making the thing happen. Cool. And I, I really want to delve a little bit deeper into that idea of stress testing, how, how people might do it. But before we do that, I did want to jump back because one thing that I um, was seeking a bit of additional clarity on is like where exactly in the process we decide what we're de-implementing. Because even in this uh, this chapter on preparing and develop explicit uh, de-implementation plans. Sometimes you were talking about developing like multiple plans for different things. Mm -hmm. And maybe you are suggesting that people can de-implement multiple things at the same time. But I, I wasn't 100% clear on like where in the process we go, okay, this is the final thing we're focusing on. And we made that decision based upon X, Y, Z. Can you help me understand that a bit more? Yeah. I, I don't think there is a definitive point before you get to uh, the third stage, which is the implementation begins, right? So um, there is there, there's a sense during Discover where you're identifying your areas, you're prospecting to understand, you're saying, yeah, these seem like good uh, good areas that we could de-implement. Uh, and these are the three or four we want to progress. Then um, when you move into the decide stage, You've narrowed down and you're looking at those areas and you're building plans in the various quadrants. You're saying, could we uh, reduce, remove, re-engineer or replace? And how would we make that happen? And you're stress testing. You might get to the end of that whole process and then go, no, this ain't going to work. Um, forget it. We need to go back. We need to go back entirely uh, to, to the beginning, select the next cab off the rank and, and start again. And, and if you need to do that, I, I think that that's, um, that is a good thing to do because the, the, the danger is, is you, you, you enter into the sunk cost fallacy and say, well, we spent a long time uh, looking at homework um, and reviewing uh, how we could do it. 
we've concluded that none of these things would work very well from a de-implementation perspective. But given that we spent three weeks on this, we're going, we're still going to push ahead, even though we're quite skeptical, right? So, so there's a sense in which you're, you are going to be dancing. You, you might be dancing backwards and forwards. It's not, it's not necessarily a linear thing. You may be going, you, you may be going around the mulberry bush a few times before you get to that uh, destination. And it's better that you do that. That every Rubicon you stop. Uh, and, and you think deeply before you make a decision to cross, because some some of those doors that you might, you, or some of those rivers that you might cross, might be one way. They might be very difficult to get back to where you started once you've gone down uh, a certain avenue. No, that okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, Dylan, what would you like to add to that? And I think the crucial point here is that the, the implementation team documents their efforts, because document. The implementation teams will come to an end of their work and they'll pass on to other people. It's really helpful for the next implementation group to realize that the previous group actually looked really hard at ways in which we can make homework less labor intensive and concluded that it couldn't be done. So I think that in terms of organizational learning, I think sometimes just exhausting these possibilities can be very helpful and just say, nope, the solution is not down this road. Let's not waste any more time. Let's look at other places. Mm, good point. Coming back to this idea of stress testing, I think it's an important one because, you know, potentially, I mean, and this can be done in this area with de-implementation, but it's really something that you can do in many areas of what occurs at school and or even in, in your own life. So I think it's one worth diving into in a bit more detail. You mapped a whole, whole heap of ways of stress testing, um, such as pre-mortem, delivery chain mapping, body storming, side effect analysis, variant analysis, and so on. Uh, which of these do you think may be most fruitful and that and could you uh, give us a little bit more information about a, a couple of the key ones, Aaron? Yeah, I, I, one, one of the uh, more commonly used and commonly understood ones uh, with, with, within our sector is pre-mortem. So that, that's the notion that uh, rather than waiting for the patient to die and then cutting them up uh, afterwards to find out uh, why it was that they passed away, instead you imagine that it is uh, one year from now uh, and that they have died and you think about all the possible reasons why that might have happened and then you put some mitigation plans in place to stop that, making them eat their greens and their vegetables and give up smoking, whatever it is. Um, but of course, in, in our case, when we're thinking about this, the patient is actually your de-implementation program. So you're, you're saying, oh, okay, we've, we, we've implemented this thing. We're, we're removing, mm, I don't know, uh, wall display. Um, in, in a year's time from now, everyone's still putting it up. Why would that, have, why would that be the case? And therefore, uh, what, what can we do about it? Um, and then you're using that to say, what mitigations are we going to add to our strategy uh, to uh, address this? And there's, there's quite a lot that we looked at from the behavioural change literature in, uh, in the health sciences. Um, so some strategies are things like uh, reshaping the environment so that you create frictions, uh, social contracts, uh, prohibi in a pr prohibition of activities. Um, uh, public uh, leaderboards and, and things of that nature. So, so there's a whole range of things that you can do um, once you understand what the reasons are why initiatives might fail, to put structures around, to, um, to sandbox things in a way that uh, better uh, results in the outcomes that you're seeking. I don't think we can be too prescriptive here because I think my experience is certainly that people are pretty good at actually answering the question, you know, Assume it's a year from now and this has failed, why might that be? 
I think people can come up with lots of ideas that we probably wouldn't come up with because we don't know enough about the context. So I think that that, I'd agree with Aaron, that the best place for stress testing is this idea of a pre-mortem. Assuming this fails in a year's time, what do you think the likely causes are? I think that's just a very productive spur for discussion. That's great. And then um, one other uh, strategy that um, John Hattie and I have uh, have used and that we outlined in uh, one of our other books, The Lean Education Manifesto, is uh, what we call variant al- analysis. So it's, it's a simple matrix table where on the uh, on the, the vertical column uh, at, at the top, you list every every type of step in the process. So the the dosage, the duration, the target group the treatment group and, and every step of the activity. And then in the uh, in the horizontal column, you list every way that you could vary that treatment. So is it the teacher that does it? Is it um, a, a support system? Is it somebody else? Um, how, how, much, uh, how much of the intervention does each student get? Is it five minutes uh, once a week? Is it 20 minutes per fortnight, et cetera, et cetera? And it, and it enables you to think through uh, like quite scientifically what, what all the variables and the different sliders if you think about it almost like um, uh, a, a, the graphic equalizer uh, segment in an old-fashioned hi-fi where you have these different sliders that you can move up and down it enables you to map each of those sliders and say well if we move this one up one notch you know so the, the dosage is um, is uh, 30 minutes rather than uh, rather than 15 minutes what difference might that make or if we did it on Tuesday rather than Friday would that would that have an impact and so, you're, and so you're thinking through that in a very um, in, a, in a very methodical manner. Okay, thinking about the contributing factors and dialing them up or down, and considering the the combination of outcomes that might result. Really interesting, and I think I think that yeah, to emphasise the point that you've both emphasised, just thinking in a year from now if this had failed, what might what might what likely got in the way, I think is a really valuable one. Um, you know, people might like to approach or apply that question to things like their marriage or uh or uh, the new hobby that they're taking up or their project to, to lose weight or whether new year's resolutions i think it's just a really really uh, valuable question that uh is, is applicable in a wide range of scenarios so that's that's prepare that's coming up with a concrete plan the next the next step in the and we're still in the kind of decide phase is picture developing a success map and uh, an actual really, really concrete implementation plan. There was one thing that really jumped out to me in this section of the book, and that was a kind of a bolded section that you had with about five references that followed it. And you were saying basically there's one major factor in implementation uh, that really seems to be a bit of a linchpin in most scenarios. Can you can you tell us about that, Aaron? So, only here are you referring to the fact that um, if you make, a, for example, a dietary plan, uh, if you if you fail to get on the weighing scales and check whether you have uh, you have made progress, you are unlikely to make progress. Is it is it is it it's something along those lines? You're it's you're the check in the check in idea, yeah. Yeah, no, it is, it is exactly that. It's interesting. So uh, Janet Clinton, um, who collaborated with, with me on, on another book, she, she's, uh, who is a professor of evaluation at, uh, at Melbourne University, she has this um, this 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 uh, this mantra, which is that um, really well thought out plans um, without evaluation and without checking 
almost always go to pulp because you can't see. No, no everyone's assuming that it's working because it's it's been really robustly designed. Um, but everyone's just assuming that um, that design is leading to impact, whereas it might be a, a, an, the, an adaptation that becomes a lethal mutation that could in fact become harmful. Whereas by contrast, what she says is sometimes you have really um, bat poo crazy, and this is this is my paraphrasing. It's not uh, it's not Janet that has said bat poo crazy, but they, but you might have bat poo crazy um, ideas that make no sense. But what are you saying? You, what, what what's that word you're using? I have no idea what you're saying. Ah, um, poo. Uh, the uh, excrement. The, the 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 thing that comes from the the behind of a bat. Um, so, oh, so you might oh, have bat, the bat, as in the animal bat. I thought we said bats. Yeah, bats. Yeah, that's it. Okay, got it. Yeah, for, uh, for, for, forgive me, Ollie. So, so, so you might have something that's, uh, or if I put it in another way, you might have an intervention that's really harebrained and that makes uh, no sense and would, would be ridiculous and frivolous to either implement or to de-implement. But the fact that you are going through the process of checking means that. Very early on, you discover that it is not working, and then you stop and pause and say, "Whoa, that's not going very well. Um, what could we do about this? Should, should, should we continue for a bit longer? Are we just in the are we just in the valley of latent potential? Uh, should we make some some micro variation to the, uh, the 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 design of what we're doing, or should we kill this, go back to the drawing board?" And try something else instead. So, so it's almost that notion that Yogi Berra has. Well, if you don't know where you're going, you might not know whether you've got there, and um, you therefore need to check. You, you you need to decide what your destination is, and you need to measure thoroughly and regularly along the way. I think we can. You know, there's there's lots of sources here. One is uh, W. Edwards Deming, who said, you know, without data, you're just another person with an opinion. Or oh, there's Lord Kelvin's remark that. When you cannot measure it, when you cannot express it in numbers, your knowledge is, is of a meager and unsatisfactory kind. And I think those may be overstating it, and I'm not going to sh go to the stake on the word data, but unless you have some objective way of showing whether you're making progress, you're going to fool yourself. You're going to say things are okay. And I think the importance about this step, step is you have to be able you, you, you have to be able to get falsified, to use Karl Popper's term. You have to be able to be to actually discover that what you thought was happening isn't happening. The data has to be able to bring you up short. And so it needn't be quantitative data, but I think that's, you, you've got to find ways of having rigorous um, information being produced that at least raises the possibility that shows you what you thought was happening isn't happening and you need to find out why that is mm. crucial point i mean and the the analogy for teachers is hopefully clear and that's the idea of both formative assessment and checking for understanding more broadly yeah. what's the most important for, thing for teachers to do check whether the thing that thing they thought their students had learned has actually been learned yeah. um, both now and in, in in a couple of weeks from now ideally in a couple of months from now once again exactly. and if we don't do that then we should have a low level of confidence that that it's actually been learned um, I mean, I'm sure teachers are all, also familiar with the importance of checking in when they've been more consistent with things like checking homework. Uh, when you check homework consistently, your students do their homework. When you fail to check your homework consistently, your students stop doing homework. And so it's just the same with any kind of uh, implementation plan. And so, I, yeah, I, I think it, it was fantastic how you emphasized this idea of checking in within the book, uh, particularly in this 
section 2.3 picture developer success map and an evaluation plan uh, because really without that without and without concretely saying and 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 as you suggest like setting dates of we're going to check at this time and we're going to look at these things and this is what we should see and then we're going to check it again at this time we're going to look at these things and this is what we should see by then without that it's so easy for things to be forgotten uh, and then crucially allocating one specific person to be the person who's going to check those things and, and, and make sure they have the tools to do so. And also, crucially, making sure someone else is overseeing them um, to, to keep them in line. You know, these kind of really the, the most simple of structures and a kind of accountability uh, structures and schedules are really what can, can make the difference between something being successful or just being forgotten about. Uh, Dylan? You have to have a mechanism for bringing a process to an end if it's not working. Uh, Laurie Taylor, professor of sociology at York University, you had this satiric um, blog about uh, the Tuesday afternoon time immemorial committee. And what we don't want is for this, this group, this de-implementation backbone group, just to continue to exist because it exists. And so we see the data as being crucial for it to actually say, yes, this is working, we're making progress, or no, we're not making progress. And the, the, this idea of kill parameters, if we haven't got to this point by this time, we're not going to spend any more time on it. You, you might actually find ways of mitigating uh, the failure, but you've got to have a way of, of, of bringing a process to an end if it's not working, and therefore you have to have measures of whether it's not working. Hmm. Have are there some concrete examples? Because I think this idea of kill parameters is a powerful one saying, you know, if, if we reach this threshold, we're going to stop the project. Are there some concrete? Because I think that's a great idea. I also think it's incredibly challenging because, you know, if you've put all this time and effort into something, it's, it's many ways a sunk cost fallacy. But in some ways, it's not because you have actually kind of set the trajectory of a school in a potentially different direction and you might find yourself halfway between the old and the new mm -hmm. uh, and it, it can be really hard to know what to do um so do you have any concrete examples of a school or you know even a hypothetical of a school who sets a specific kill parameter finds that that's kind of tripped and then has to make a decision to to go forward or go backwards and in, in the context of a specific de-implementation plan is it can you add any color either of you add any color to that I can, I can think about it from another perspective because I think I, I found uh, in our work that uh, getting schools to think from that perspective of kill parameters has been uh, quite difficult. Instead, what I have seen once or twice is uh, automatic expiration. So effectively, they, they, they might be, a school might enter a contract service to buy some uh, piece of software that's used by students, and there's an automatic um, date at which that ends, and a meeting is established uh, with another uh, procurement committee to actually review the data and say, well, do we want to rebuy this thing again? Uh, and actually making uh, the procurement go through the same process as it had done previously, rather than just automatically renew on a rollover basis. So, so, so I've seen that work sometimes where, where, where there is a, um, the thing dies unless we choose to make it live because it just comes to the end of the life cycle of payments for, for, for whatever the product or service is. Um, but I, I think one of the challenges with kill parameters is sometimes we can um, 
find all sorts of like justifications to say, oh, well, you know, the, the, if we just continue for another six months, we're, we're, we're almost there. I can almost see the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Uh, and then we're, uh, we're six months on and then we're saying the same thing ad infinitum. And it can become very, very challenging uh, to, to, to break that cycle. Mm. I can think of a concrete example with regard to off-the-shelf lesson plans. So yes, we decide that off-the-shelf lesson plans are good. There's research that shows that they're no worse than the lesson plans that the best teachers produce and often better than average and less effective teachers produce. But we might set as a kill parameter, let's find off-the-shelf lesson plans that cover 25% of the stuff that we teach and make sure that it's good enough. And it might be that you decide that after three months of searching, you can't find enough good off-the-shelf lesson plans to cover 25% of the curriculum. So it's quite unlikely you're going to be able to do, make much of an impact. So you might have a really concrete criterion like that, just mm -hmm. to say, okay, so we're going to replace X with Y. Is there enough Y? And we give ourselves a target of at least a proportion of the necessary Y being identified by a particular date as being a, a killer parameter. Yeah. That, that's a that's a great great way to approach it as well. Um, and from based upon what you both have said in this section, I think it also highlights the value of it, re it relates to that kind of automatic expiry thing that you were talking about, Aaron. The value of posing things as pilots, and you know you don't actually have to go full scale de-implementation right across the school for something. You can actually also think, all right, well we're going to try this out. We're going to try it out for this period of time. Again, we're going to we expect to see these results by this the end of this period of time and if we don't uh you haven't kind of over committed to it so i think that's a a really good thing to think about as well aaron exactly i i would uh think of it um as, as being akin to a science experiment so so you have a hypothesis you're uh you you think that something seems like there's a high probability that it will save you time uh, and without harming student uh learning or student outcomes, uh, you're going to put the thing into uh, into action uh, in a controlled manner. You're going to collect the data and see, and you're going to be very dispassionate about the outcomes. Um, so if it, if it doesn't get you where you want to, you say, okay, let's move to the next thing because there were seven other ideas we had. We'll try one of those next. Mm. That's great. We're not going to go through all the other steps in the same level of detail as we have, but just for, for, for the benefit of listeners, we kind of, from here, we move into... Uh, the the de implement the actual de implementation where we proceed uh, and we execute the implementation action plan and kind of collect the data that we've planned on collecting. Then from there we move into the redecide phase where the first four point one is appraise, review evaluative data, and decide where to do, what to do next uh, or where to next. And four point two is propel, make longer term sustainability and scaling decisions. Um, again, if people want more detail about that, they can jump into the book, Dylan. Well, I was going to say, if, if people want more information about that and they go to the book, they're going to be disappointed. Because what we say about this third stage is that we don't know what it's going to look like in your school. You, 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 you've laid the groundwork. You've identified the potential areas. You've defined what it is that you're going to look for if the thing is going according to plan. You're going to collect the data. But we don't know what it's going to look like because it's going to be different in different schools. So as we say in the book, you know, this stage is a bit of a black box to us because it's going to look completely different in different schools. Hopefully, if you've done stages one and two right, then stage three will be self-sustaining because you'll be 
running through the things you've already decided to do, you have a clear picture of what success looks like. You put in place all the mitigations from your pre-mortem and you're generating the data and hopefully the data is supporting continuing with this deimplementation or suggesting you actually stop and go back to another initiative that you developed and looked at in stage two. So, you know, we're, we're not skipping over this because we're short of time. We're skipping over this because there's not much to say. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually interesting you say that, Dylan, because I felt exactly the same way. And once I, even before I read these two final sections, once I'd read the first half of the book, I was like, okay, got it. You know, like it's either going to work from there or it's not going to work. And if it, keep, if it works, you keep going. If it doesn't, you try something else. So it was interesting. I, I did obviously read the final chapters, but not as deeply as the previous ones. And that's also why I felt like we didn't need to uh, spend as much time on today. So it's, it's good of you to be open about that, uh, Dylan, as well. There was one question, though, I had about that fits into this kind of like, is it working or not? And it's going to or it's not section that I think might be beneficial for, for listeners. And that is, if we think about evaluative data that can inform the decision of whether things are working or whether things aren't like what what are some of the things that schools could be thinking about concretely collecting and of course it's dependent upon uh the actual thing they're targeting for de-implementation but are there some things you've seen that schools are tracking that you've been like oh that's actually a really clever thing to track that's providing more insight than people might actually anticipate uh on kind of on the uh the, the quality data front so I, I'd say the things that, um, depending on the initiative that you might want to track, are how much time you actually are saving. So if, if you've used some app to uh, record before you start and actually collect time data about how much time you're spending on different activities, you could continue to collect that uh, as you go through to actually get real quantitative data on um, we previously spent 15 hours on X, now we're only spending eight hours on X, and so there is a, there's a surplus of hours that, that is left over. Uh, that, that, that is quite useful, and it can be incredibly empowering, uh, because the, the other alternative is just to say, well, I kind of feel like we're spending less time, but I'm not sure, but my, my general qualitative sense is that I, I feel less stressed and, and, and less overworked. That's still okay, if, uh, because there's obviously, there's a time cost to, to, to actually gathering the, uh, the timestamp data in, in itself, but so one thing is, is is time. Secondly, you could be looking, if, if one of your reasons for de-implementation is to save money, it might be that you have budgetary constraints, so you're, you're actually looking at the cost benefit of things, programs, external programs that you're procuring. Um, you might be looking uh, at the resource savings, you know, so, 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 so whether, you have, whether you have saved budget. You might be looking, uh, or, and, or, and I would suggest you are looking in some way at this, at the side effects or, or trying to consider those side effects. You, you might have regular student voice groups. Uh, you might not want to be asking directly uh, to the students whether uh, they feel that uh, um, they're worse off as a result of some change happening because then suddenly they think that they should feel that they're worse off. So instead, you might just be asking, uh, just, just sort of tracking um, the degree to which there's any changes in their sentiment uh, as a result of the change that's being made. 
And of course, you'd want to be tracking student achievement or student outcomes, you know, whether, whether there's any change over time in those measures um, and, and student attendance as well. So it, it, will, it will vary depending on the initiative, but those are kind of the broad categories, time, resource, student outcomes, side effects. And then also the other one I would add is what you're doing with the savings, right? So you, you might be saving all of these hours, um, but what's happening with them? Are you filling them back up again with other activities that are uh, just as tangentiary? Uh, or are you uh, using them to de-stress, to go and walk the dog, uh, watch Netflix, uh, get your life back? Or are you investing them in um, other high impact initiatives? So any of those could be, uh, or any of the last two could be suitable. You, you could invest them in high impact initiatives or in, in dog stroking. Uh, if, if you should so wish. But what you want to make sure is that you're not replacing uh, CRUD that you've removed with more CRUD that, uh, that, that you're requiring without without thinking it through. Mm. Yeah, but before I throw the deal in, that's, I think that's a really good point. I, I often, I have a, like a monthly catch up with a, a friend and fellow educator, Peps McRae, where we talk about, you know, our goals for the next month and things like that. And I was talking to him in a recent month about how I've been extremely busy and we were kind of going through different things that I could potentially cut out. And then he, he's poorly said, Ollie, I'm not actually convinced that if you cut any of these things out, you're not going to fill them with something else. You're going to say yes to some other project that's going to keep you equally busy. So I think we need to step back a little bit and think about how you're approaching what you say yes and what you say no to, um, to kind of keep the, make sure that you, if you do free up some space, it's filled with stuff that's actually really, really important to rather than just the next, the next question or the next request from someone. Uh, so yeah, both are an important point at the school level and also in, the, in per, many people's personal lives, I think as well, Aaron. Dylan. I think it's also important to value subjective data. So obviously, you know, we don't want to go overboard collecting questionnaires on teacher stress. Um, I think we should actually trust teacher self-reports a bit more, but do so by having a, a, ben a benchmark. So I think before you start the, the implementation efforts, you could just ask teachers how stressed they are on a scale of one to 10. And hopefully, even though different teachers will have different um, calibrations of that scale, hopefully the same teacher will be reporting lower levels of stress a year later. So I, I think we could just get something really quick and, and dirty that's, that's not perfect, but at least is giving us some indication of whether teachers are perceiving a reduction in stress or workload or whatever, uh, just on a very simple one to 10 scale. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And I think it, it ties back to um, what something you've both emphasized throughout the, the, the uh, discussion and that's the idea of seeing it kind of as a experiment in many ways and you've mm. kind of got a pre-test, a post-test, you've got some hypotheses and, and, and you're testing them. Um, I guess one, one overlay of that uh, self-report data is the, the seasonality of the data, the natural ebb and flow of uh, mental health and, and feelings of well-being throughout a year. Um, you know, we know that generally there's a bit of a dip towards the end of a term. People are feeling more positive towards the start of a term. So factoring that into it, like sampling timing is something mm -hmm. that uh, teachers and leaders might want to think about as well. But even even without that, um, I think, yeah, that self-report data can be incredibly valuable. Uh, so thanks for emphasizing that, Dylan. I'm, I'm curious to talk, spend a little bit of time talking about the idea of what what to de implement. So you, you've got the appendix, which I think is it's great to have like a, 
uh, a big list of potential things for people to think about. I, I, I was wondering, because it's in many ways, it's kind of the question of what to implement as uh, they're, they're kind of similar questions. And if, if we were talking about, you know, what to implement, what strategy, you know, what reading program to use, how to approach mathematics teaching, whatever it might be, my my first step would always be well you know what is the what does the evidence say as well as what do we already do and what are our orientations like what does the evidence actually say in terms of published research studies etc on what it's most effective to start with to achieve this end that we want to achieve so i'm wondering if another place that people might might want to start because a lot of uh, the the approach you emphasize in the book and the approach that you emphasized at the start dylan was um, you know, we can't be prescriptive about this because every school is different. But I wonder if there is a bit more of a role for potentially a follow-up book that really dives into the evidence and says, well, here, here are the correlations about, um, about you know, instructional hours and student outcomes, which we've had a look at. That's probably a pretty pretty blunt measure, so that's probably not the best one. But when we look at schools on the whole, you know, we, we go through all these different things, homework, marking, whatever it might be, and it, it appears that this thing's work best practice. So if you're actually doing this other thing, here's a bit of a roadmap to, to transition. To, to me, it seems like there is a place for a bit more prescriptiveness in terms of this is more likely to work, this is less likely to work, as long as there's um, sufficient discussion of mechanisms and why that's the case to help people understand why that might be relevant in their context or not. Uh, am I wrong? Uh, what, what do you think, Dylan? A year ago, I'd agree with you. Now, I've, I've now become convinced that the most important thing we can do is to give teachers time to think about how they can use artificial intelligence in their teaching. I think we are faced with extraordinary opportunities for making education more effective, but this is only going to be achieved if teachers have the time to figure out how to use this productively in their own context. So my concern with your question is we might be working out how to get the best solution in the past rather than what's going to be possible in the future. You know, research only ever tells us what was, not what might be. And, and as I said, a year ago, I'd have been very happy to sort of engage in this conversation and say, where, which are the low-hanging fruit? But now I think that it's just so hard to keep up with what's going on. And the technology is just so powerful. I mean, just, just it's just incredible how quickly things are changing. So the economist Tyler Cowen has just written a book on the 10 greatest economists of all time. He's embedded it within ChatGPT4. So you don't read the book, you engage the book, you could get the PDF, but instead you actually get presented with a ChatGPT4 interface and you interrogate the book and you ask it to summarize the arguments of chapter three. And so Teachers need time to figure out how to make this work for their own students. So for me, I think that we need, we need, we need teachers to have time to explore how they can use AI productively, because it really is a game changer. I'm now convinced of that. I've been very mm. skeptical about technology in the past. I think AI really is going to make a difference. Yeah, I, I could agree with more about the, the, the potential and, yeah, the, uh, the reality of the fact that AI is going to change things a lot. I'm wondering, Dylan, if we need to give, because the way you're framing that is like we need to give all teachers time to explore. I, I think it could s potentially follow a similar path to kind of what I was alluding to on, in terms of a follow-up book. Do we need to give all teachers time to explore? Or do we need to give 
a subset of teachers who are particularly skilled and interested in this area the time to explore so that they can find out some solutions for a wider population? I, I think all teachers, actually. I just think this is so revolutionary that if teachers aren't given the time to explore this, and look, some teachers will make the time. They'll spend their weekends working on this. But I don't think we can afford for any students to be taught by teachers who aren't engaging with the possibilities that AI creates. It's just going to create a kind of two-level two system. So I, I, you know, I think we are going to have to... I mean, certain countries are already creating time for teachers, but typically in Australia, in the United States, in, in the UK, teachers are in front of children almost all the hours that the children are in school. And so there just isn't any t time in teachers' contracts to think. And I think that, for me now, and I'm not sure I was there when, when we started working on this book, but I'm convinced that the greatest benefit of making room for impact is not to put in another initiative, but to free up teachers' mental space to think about how they can, first of all, to gain facility with AI, but then to think about how it can be used in their own teaching. Two questions. One, what changed your mind? Two, how is this influencing how you personally spend your time in the education space? So what changed my mind? Just the incredible range of things that AI can do now. So I was just reading an article the other day. Somebody is using ChatGPT to simplify Shakespeare's text to help his students engage with the text. And so, you know, you could say, well, it misses the richness of Shakespeare's language. But that'll come later once the students understand there's some point to the story. So just little stories like that, the fact that books are now no longer going to be linear, we're going to engage with the books. Just um, Photomath, a, a little app for your phone. You can just take a picture of a handwritten equation and it'll solve it for you. It'll tell you the steps to solving it for you. Just so much of what we value. And, and you know, Aaron, John and I have explored this in a paper on how AI will change education. Th this is really groundbreaking and it's going to completely undermine the model of schooling that most people have and I think teachers need to have um, time to think about this. To your second question, I'm spending a ludicrous amount of time trying to keep up with AI. I, you know, I'm 68 years old. I thought I would just kind of slowly fade away and carry on working on formative assessment and just genuinely persuading people to work on this. But it's just, it, you know, first of all, it's, it's almost impossible to keep up because there's so much going on, but it's just so revolutionary and it's going to have a, such a huge impact and I don't want any children to be left behind because their teachers didn't have the time to maximize the benefit of this technology. Mm, fascinating, Dylan. You, um, you have definitely spoken the most passionately about the p power of AI to change education of any guest I have had on the podcast so far. So that's uh, Maybe this is an inflection point. We will see. I've actually just received a book about the impact of AI on education, so I will be definitely diving into that uh, soon. Aaron? Yeah, there was one other uh, follow-up point that, that I had on that, linked to the, the paper that uh, Dylan and, and John and I had worked on some months ago. And that is that um, there are a number of super forecasters that are looking uh, out at the not just the current technology, but the rate of advance and the steps that are required to take uh, what is currently artificial intelligence to artificial general intelligence. So something that has um, similar capabilities to, to, to you or I and that could uh, think hierarchically, 
form goals uh, and implement plans. And the estimates for that are coming down and down amongst those super forecasters. So uh, 20 years ago, it was uh, 2300. Then it became uh, uh, 2048. Now it's 2031. Okay, so, so if, if these estimates are accurate, uh, we are uh, very close to the cusp of a revolution that uh, is likely to be more powerful than the industrial revolution that took a long time uh, to, to, to work to work through uh, the system uh, that will have profound implications for education because there might be no jobs. Uh, there may be no need for people to be uh, economically active. It may be that schools serve a very different purpose. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm fairly relaxed, actually, about this notion of de-implementation, because um, it may not be uh, it, you know, very far in the future uh, where we're not, we're not where we're thinking uh, less from the terms of human capital development and more from the terms of uh, well-being, enjoyment and uh, how, how we fill our time with pursuits that give us happiness. Hmm. Fascinating. I mean, yeah, these are these are recurring narratives throughout history, aren't they? Uh, that have come up again and again, and we 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 wonder whether this particular. I mean, obviously, creating another artificial general intelligence has the potential to be a real a huge inflection point. Um, I don't know. I'm 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 still not a hundred percent convinced. I think I need to come come a little bit further along the the road as you have, Dylan. Um, yes, you're going to convince me right now. Well. I think what I'm really looking forward to is seeing what happens when ChatGPT 4.5 or ChatGPT 5 makes most of the work that PhD people and master's people do completely redundant and has nothing to say about electricians and plumbers and plasterers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're going to see a complete, I think, a complete change in the labor market. For mm -hmm. example, with, with things that we used to think of being high status, you know, we used to have calculators used to be people working yeah. in a, an office and, you know, a, a physicist would call down a calculation and these people would do these calculations and phone back the answer. And that was regarded as quite important work and now it's being done by machine. And I think that we've seen lots of quite skillful work being automated and therefore losing status. Uh, I'm really interested to see what happens in, in this new world. But I think, come, come back to what the point that Aaron was making, the, the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, certain class of the ancient Greeks anyway, did not define their humanity by the jobs that they did. And so, you know, why don't we, why isn't education now being a preparation for leisure? With music, drama, uh, you know, literature, all those things that people do when they can find the time that isn't being taken up by work. So I think all those things are going to be really quite revolutionary. And again, I think teachers need time to think about how to, 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 to maximize the opportunities. Yeah, that's great. And I think at, at, a, at a societal level, we also need to be thinking about because it's a, it's a discussion not just for schools, of course. It's a discussion for society if we need to see employment in a different light probably um, if all these jobs do become obsolete. It's, it fundamentally need to think differently about providing people with the basic means of sustenance and uh, and, and shelter and things like that so that they don't have to so that they can then potentially explore these things but yeah it's it's a seismic and a terrifying uh, shift terrifying to me at least uh, but also an exciting one I think that's a really good uh, segue into some of the closing questions I did originally 
ask was going to ask what's three book recommendations but you dylan you've helped me to realize that this is now an obsolete question um so i need to ask something along the lines of what what are some things that people that you would recommend people engage with uh that you have found it stimulating to engage with recently dylan i just think playing around with artificial intelligence just seeing just for example you know just asking it to write a summary of macbeth and you give it to some students to help them understand the play and you give it to more advanced students to critique. You know, you, just the way in which the labor of, of, of what schools do, just exploring. So for example, you know, I asked it to write a condolence letter and it was mm-hmm. not bad. It, it would save me a huge amount of time in terms of thinking about what to say. I asked Claude AI to write a school assessment policy for a secondary school. And it wasn't, it was pretty good. You know, there's a couple of things that I would have changed, but it was extraordinarily good for a first attempt. Mm. And so for me, I, I think it's just trying to, li- trying to listen to I mean, more podcasts than reading uh, these days, but just finding out what people who are working in this field think about the future and just being alert and then just trying it, just playing around. Because I think teachers have always been very creative. Teachers have always taken the existing technology and used it to, to serve their, their students more effectively. I think we're beginning to scratch the surface of what AI can do, but it's gonna be teachers who have the time to think who are really gonna be able to make this work. And that's what I'm excited to see is, is what teachers are doing with this. Um, once they understand the technology and they have the time to play around with the ideas, then experiment with this kind of thing in their own classrooms. That's great. Here's an example. Here's a query I sent to ChatGPT this morning. Um, that's really good to help with. You know, I'm creating a set of quadrants called the Culture of Coaching quadrants to help schools map where they are at with their teacher coaching program. The x-axis is consistency. The y-axis is enthusiasm. Let's consider the quadrants: top left, top right, bottom left, bottom right. What should the, uh, I name each quadrant? Right. That, like I use ChatGPT all the time for stuff like that, yeah. and. It, came up with i mean I, I didn't perfectly use but like as a form of ideation it came up with so many great and i was like generate 10 more suggestions generate 10 more and what i've come up with now i'm like i think is, is really great but it's for that kind of stuff it's just phenomenal yeah or even you know give me 10 questions on the cause of the first world war make them harder yeah make them require information that isn't in the text yeah it, it's just it, it's, teachers haven't got that kind of prompt engineering approach yet and they're going to need support in doing that but that's where i think the real yeah. the real magic is going to come from super super exciting um you said you're more into podcasts than books right now could you give us three podcast recommendations i i, I listen to econ talk quite a lot because mm-hmm. um it's just things that i don't know that much about i find that a lot of the education podcasts i listen to i find there's so much of it that i already know so i try to find Things that, um, that, that that really stretch my thinking, and, and econ talk is you know it comes from a particular economic perspective, but I think it's been very broadening for me because it's covered a huge range of issues, everything from you know why is milk at the back of the of the supermarket to what's happening in Gaza. Mm. So. Great. So that's your main go-to, and then I guess you branch off from there. Yeah. Great. Aaron, any, what have you been engaging with recently that you have been finding stimulating cognitively? 
one of the key areas for me, in addition to uh, what Dylan has been talking about around artificial intelligence and, and where that is going, is the uh, work that's happening in the effective altruism community. So this, so, so this is the, the notion that perhaps we're at a pivot point in history where the things that we do right now might have uh, significant implications for uh, future generations, things that might become locked in and difficult to change when, uh, when, when, they, when they come into being, whether that be artificial intelligence, whether that be uh, changes in uh, things like bioweapons, for example, that could have the potential to have um, uh, profound um, life extinguishing content, uh, uh, consequences uh, for, for, for many of us. And understanding um, what we could do now to slow some of these things down so that the many trillions of future humans that come after us uh, will have the best lives possible and that we balance their interests uh, um, in equal proportion to our own interests right now. That's really interesting because I, I am myself an, an effective altruist, but I, I haven't been engaging with the, the discussions about it at all. So I've always thought about generally, you know, maximizing opportunities amongst the current population, but not so much with, with the future population as well. So that's super interesting. If people want to find out more about that, uh, where should they go? Uh, 80,000 Hours, the, uh, the, the podcast, um, which is uh, one of the flag carriers of the effective altruism community. Great. And if people um, do want to listen to uh, Peter Singer's book, The Life You Can Save, that's freely available as, as a set of free podcasts uh, in all podcast players, The Life You Can Save. We'll put that in there too. Um, and I know you're into the effective altruism movement as well, Dylan. Any last calls to action, things uh, that you'd like listeners to go away today and do? Aaron? So I would say um, go and sit down somewhere quiet away from your, your, your day job and your, your hubbub. Uh, make a list of all of the things that you do on an average working day uh, and then think deeply about the things on that list and ask whether any of those tasks seem like pointless busy work. If they do, put two question marks against them. Then ask yourself whether any of the other tasks that don't seem like pointless busy work, whether there are ways that they could be made more efficient. And if you conclude that the answer to that is yes, put one question mark uh, down against that. And if after doing that, you ref you notice that there are there's at least one question mark on that list, then you should think about the potential benefits of undertaking a systematic de-implementation inquiry cycle. Love that, Aaron. Aaron, is there anything you've de-implemented in your life recently uh, that you're willing to share that was stimulated by the kind of work that you've done on de-implementation? Um, well, I've, I've slowly been de-implementing work itself. So um, I, I, over the last eight years, I've been reducing my, uh, my, my formal working hours uh, and I'm, I'm down to about two days a week, uh, which frees me up to do the kinds of work that we're talking about now, the, the book writing and the research that I've been engaging in with, with Dylan and also with John Hattie uh, to focus on things that perhaps will be useful to a, a wide global audience. That's great. Love that. Dylan. The framework that I find quite helpful is to just imagine the following scenario. The Earth's rotation slows, so there are now 25 hours in a day. I have one extra hour in the day. What am I going to do with that hour? I do that with school teachers, with principals. What would you do with one extra hour in a day? And often it's spend more time with my kids or whatever. I say, okay, let's say the Earth speeds up, but now there's only 23 hours in a day. 
what would you cut out? And often people say, I'd spend less time at work. And if you said, if there was one less hour in the day, I would spend less time at work. And if there was one more hour in the day, I'd spend it with my family. It has nothing to stop you right now from taking that hour away from work and giving it to your family. Yeah. <laughs> there aren't any more hours in the day, but what you can do is make sure that every hour you spent is spent in a way that you look back and say, yes, I'm glad that's what I did with that time. So that's for me is, 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 is a powerful way of just getting that made more concrete. If it was one more hour in the day, what would you do? If it was one fewer hour in the day, what would you do? If they're not the same, make the switch. Thank you so much, um, both Aaron and, and Dylan. This has been a fantastic discussion on such an important uh, core topic, but also an absolutely core set of um, wide-ranging topics. I guess one of the uh, most inspiring things for me today, uh, Dylan, was your comment about how you, you thought you were going to kind of kind of peter out in your career and keep talking about formative assessment, but you've kind of been reinvigorated by this kind of AI idea. I think, I think educators... Um, Actually, here's a question. A few years ago, in 2017, in January something of 2017, you said that cognitive load theory was the most important thing for teachers to know. Is AI now a more important thing for teachers to know about? I think that AI is important for teachers to know about, but I still think that cognitive load theory is crucial for anybody who actually wants kids to learn things for longer than a, a day in the classroom. So it, right. it, it's just so counterintuitive that children can completely finish unaided an instructional activity and not learn anything from doing it. That is so counterintuitive and so counter to the mental models that certainly I had as a, as a, as a, as a teacher in school. Great. Cool. Well, I'm, I'm glad CLT is still up there for you, Dylan, and it hasn't been completely erased, <laughs> uh, replaced by AI. But yeah, like I was saying, thank you so much. That, 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 the whole discussion, I think, has been fantastic. I know it's going to be an incredibly uh, popular episode and hopefully inspired people to de-implant both at school uh, and in their own lives. Uh, so thank you very much, Aaron Hamilton and Dylan William. Thank you. Thank you. It's been fun. Hey all, it's Ollie again. One more thing before you take off, and that is Ed Threads. Would you enjoy a short email every Friday that provides a little fun, a little mental stimulation before the weekend ahead? My weekly free newsletter is super short, easy to sign up, easy to cancel, and it's basically a half page every Friday that shares all the coolest ideas and teaching tips that I've come across that week. It's kind of like my diary of teaching and learning that you get access to for free. I often link to recent papers that have come out, tweets and Twitter threads, important reports, new books, blog articles, and even other important podcasts that have been sent to me by leaders in education, including many guests from this show and that I've discovered from scouring the internet and other sources. I filter these ideas and resources so that you don't have to and only pass on the very best ones to you. So if that sounds like fun, if you'd like a little bit of goodness before you head off each weekend in a concise, quick to read format, just go to ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe to get EdThreads. Stop what you're doing right now and sign up before you forget. That's ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. Thanks for your time in listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.